lovely listeners welcome back to for what it's earth podcast hello welcome along this week so this week we have another lovely interview conducted by emma we've already shared uh one of the interviews that i did with the marine conservation society yes, this is the second one so what's happening today this time i'm talking to the lovely charlotte coombs about the marine conservation society's new good fish guide and this is all about knowing what fish you can and can't eat. Well, not can and can't eat, but would be more or less sustainable to be eating. Help you make informed choices. Absolutely. So next time you're at the fishmongers... They can halibut or hake. Exactly. Tuna or... Uh, Pollock. There was such Any potential other fish. For, for that. <laughs> Never mind. We tried. See, we, we clearly need to brush up. Yes, we do. We do. Anyway, so she's got some fascinating insights into... Um, fisheries and different fisheries management and how we can take care of our oceans um, and still continue to eat fish without depleting our kind of ocean fish stocks so she was wonderful to talk to so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna play that now i'm gonna hit play now So hello, lovely listeners. This week I am joined by Charlotte Coombs, a good fish guide manager at the Marine Conservation Society. Hello, Charlotte. Hello. Thank you for coming to talk to us. No problem. Um, So Marine Conservation Society, what are you and what do you do? You're the UK's uh, largest marine or leading marine charity, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. So we started in uh, 1983. So for a good 30 years now, we've been... um, looking after UK seashores and wildlife. And um, we sort of work on a principle of uh, looking at sort of three key pillars. So we've got our fisheries and aquaculture side of things. We've got our um, pollution and plastics side of things. And then we've got sort of broader marine protected areas, ocean recovery, ocean conservation, sort of wider, wider reaching, more overarching stuff. So those are like sort of the three key pillars of our conservation messaging. And as a charity in general, we, we sort of have a three-pronged approach I suppose in everything we do so we're always looking at um, the policy side of things and trying to make big overarching changes on that side of things we're usually looking at industry and suppliers and businesses and the best practices that they could be doing and then the consumer side of things and trying to help people to sort of make changes in their own lives that can support all of those changes and actually put pressure on businesses right the way up the chain. So that's kind of how we operate. And we're mainly UK focused, but we do a bit on UK overseas territories as well, but I never get to go there, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> so do you get to go, uh, do you get a lot of travel around the UK then? Um, mainly to Edinburgh, which is where we have an office, which Not is bad. lovely. I it's, love Edinburgh. Could be worse, could be worse. And um, we all sort of muck in and help out. So although I'm obviously fish focused, I do get involved in some of the beach cleans and stuff, which is always a perk if you're actually getting to do marine conservation by the sea. Absolutely. It's generally a benefit. <laughs> yes, because we are in Ross on Wine, nowhere near the sea really today, mm, are no, we? No, so that's, we, we started in Ross, um, sort of in someone's shed. Well, I mean, nice shed, but like in a, in a room <laughs> in the garden and, um, We've uh, stayed here ever since, but slowly branched out. Like, you know, we've got our office in Edinburgh now and yeah. we have a presence in Wales. And we're um, definitely not still in a shed today. No, 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 we, we've graduated from that. <laughs> <laughs> so of these pillars, then, as you said, you you take care of, or I suppose manage the Good Fish Guide. Talk to me about that. Yes, yeah, so the Good Fish Guide um, started um, in 2002. The first one actually was a book, quite a hefty book, that was just trying to go through all of the 
different um, seafood stocks that people eat in the UK um, and advise on on what the most sustainable ones are. And we broadly take the same approach now, except we're a website and a, an app and something a little bit more dynamic and a bit easier to access. Right, modernised. Yeah, exactly. And we um, we focus on um, seafood, so that's wild-caught fish and farmed fish that's sort of relevant to the UK. So either it's something that we're eating in the UK um, or it's something that we're fishing or farming in the UK. So that basically things that as a country we can make a difference by being more sustainable. Okay, so we're looking at kind of overfishing and and depleting our fish stocks. So this is the point of the fish guide, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, um, I've got some stats. <laughs> Lovely. We love a few stats. Um, so in 1974, 10% of global fish stocks were overfished. Okay. In 2015, 30% are overfished and about 60% are fully fished, which means we've only got 10% of give in our wild capture fisheries, basically, ninety wow. percent of our global fish stocks are either being exploited to their maximum or overexploited. Ninety percent, yeah. So there's Quite not a lot of give left. It is, yeah, and it has um, obviously has a massive impact. So the health of our seas underpins so much of how things work well like quite it's, it's really easy to just sort of you know sit there on the coastline look out at the sea and it looks beautiful and sparkling and clean and lovely but mm. what's going on underneath the waves has a massive impact and when you're changing food webs and ecosystems that has impacts right the way through so we, we there was a collapse in the cod fishery in canada in the 80s okay. and um the cod stocks there almost entirely disappeared and got replaced with crabs and lobsters so oh. we're at a point where those cod are never really going to come back in the same way. Oh. And there's quite a few fisheries work that are like that now. You know, it doesn't just, overfishing isn't just like something we can fix and just go back to the way it was. In a lot of cases, we've, these stocks have plummeted and then just never, it's, it's a permanent fundamental change to that ecosystem. So we're kind of, in some cases, messing with things that we don't fully understand yet. Yeah. And we're not really sure what those repercussions could be in the long term for us as well as for the environment. Okay, well, that's quite a, a horrifying note to start on <laughs> yeah sorry it's quite dark <laughs> okay. so, so you've said there are cases in which we we can't make a difference and some of those fish stocks might be permanently irreversibly damaged but there, I'm hoping are some cases where we can make a difference oh yeah absolutely so that's sort of like the worst case scenario um, okay. and that's the reason that we need to really sit up and take notice um, but it's a really important thing to to understand that the the, the seafood industry is 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 kind of based on money and commercial success. So if consumers are en masse choosing the most sustainable seafood, that's a big market driver for mm. um, suppliers and fishers to and farmers to be to be going for the most sustainable practices. And if we've got all of this demand in the system, then that hopefully puts pressure on the decision makers and the policy makers and the managers. So that's kind of our sort of our theory of how mm. the good fish guide works. Um, that's how we do see it working. You know, we get people coming to us and saying, you know, we've committed not to buy any red rated, five rated seafood according to the good fish guide. So, but there's this fish stock that we want to buy. What can we do to improve that fish stock to make it better? So it works on a really practical level. And um, we, we've we seen some, some really good changes in fisheries management, but there's some way to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you touched on something there that we cover quite a lot in the podcast. And we're trying to say this a lot that, you know, we as the public do have this, 
amazing power if we act on mass um, and change how we're purchasing things to to kind of lead change further up the chain. Because sometimes it feels like oh, everything needs to come top down, but in a way there is there are cycles in which we can get involved. So this is great. So let's let's move on. Show me about the good fish guide. You've put this in front of me. It's this tiny, very neat little um, paper fold out. I mean, you could put this in your purse. You could take this shopping with you if you want to. That's the plan. <laughs> very nice. I see what you've done idea. there. I have downloaded the app as well. Awesome. Thank which you. is great. So um, everybody should go and do that. So so talk me through this. We've got so, lots of lovely pictures of fish. Yeah. So we've got um, um, we've got uh, sort of a, an amber system, a traffic light system. Mm -hmm. We've got a traffic light system that um, guides how we'd like people to be choosing uh, their fish. So green rated, amber rated, and red rated. Red rated is fish to avoid. So we really, it's a hard pass on anything that's a red rated seafood um, from the Good Fish Guide. Okay. The amber stuff is um, sort of, you know, eat occasionally. They could be doing better. We definitely need to see improvements in management. Um, but, you know, you, um, you're not going to sort of break anything if you if you carry on every now and then going for the amber-rated seafood, mm. but maybe cut down on how much you're going for. Okay. And then the green-rated stuff is, as far as we're concerned, it's the sustainable option. Let's crack on. Yeah, go for it. Um, you know, create that market demand, mm. um, incentivize people for, for fishing and farming sustainably. And a lot of um, green-rated seafood comes from the UK. So by oh, choosing great. that stuff, you're actually supporting local fishers and farmers and keeping the local economy going, which okay. is a really good thing. So let's go through some examples then. What can I find as a, as a red rated fish that I should avoid? So there's one that you get quite often in fish and ship shops. It's called rock salmon. Okay. It's actually a shark. Gosh. It's a species of dogfish or cat shark, depending on what you want to call it. But it's a shark species and pretty much any shark species we say don't eat that because they're quite long lived, slow to reproduce. They're quite vulnerable to the effects of fishing. Mm -hmm. um, they're not a species that we would recommend to be eating at all, uh, any sharks or most skates and rays either actually um i wonder so, if people knew they were a shark they might be a bit less inclined to eat them as yeah. well there's something there's something about saying i'm going to eat a shark sounds yeah. so much worse than i'm gonna go and have fish for dinner exactly yeah i think rock salmon is a um sounds quite lovely and benign <laughs> um but it's it's definitely one that we'd recommend people to avoid um and until quite recently, so um, we were recommending that people would avoid wild-caught sea bass, mm -hmm. but actually the latest advice shows that stocks there are just beginning to recover. So this is a, a UK species that you know we see quite a lot on menus, and um, its stock levels have just been plummeting over several years. But this is one of these examples where they put in a lot of management measures. They've reduced the fishing pressure, yeah. and it is very slowly starting to recover. It's still, it's definitely amber-rated. It's not a green-rated one. We wouldn't be like, <laughs> just go for it. But we're starting to see improvements. So that's, oh, that's brilliant. A, a really good example of when, when you really pay attention to the science that says the stock is at a low level, mm. protect it. We can see we can put management measures in place, and they do actually work. But you have to give it time and not not get too keen. Not just start, you know, pummeling it as soon as as soon as it starts to come. No, we can't up. get that back down to red level. No, exactly. Okay, and there's a lot of tuna as well on this red list. I can see some bluefin tuna and some big eye tuna. Mm -hmm. I watched a film, I think, a couple of years ago. Gosh, what was it called? Um, End of the line. Um, which I think is quite old now, and it was definitely it was about overfishing, mm -hmm. and it was something they made us watch at university. Um, to, I think to shock us, and that was something that tuna came up in quite a lot. And I know a lot of people, when you look at say, say you're buying tuna in a tin, everyone's looking for all of the different like dolphin friendly, Poland line friendly. There's loads of these different things that can be on the tins, but I don't. How, how do you know which of those you should be paying attention to, and whether they yeah. actually matter? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. There's something that. Um, 
a lot of supermarkets have um, a label on there that's responsibly sourced, mm. which can mean different things. So there's, uh, it's, it's usually, um, if it says responsibly sourced, it means they've had a look at their seafood sources, they've done some kind of risk assessment on it. And the risk assessment sometimes includes looking at the Good Fish Guide and seeing if it's green, amber or red rated, which great. is great. And then they might either take some action to improve that fishery or they'll change their decision and, and source something else. And um, the the problem with that is that there's no real external oversight. It's not necessarily a standardized process. Mm. So it could be, it's not clear how, how sort of good a standard a responsibly sourced standard is, but it does indicate that some action has been taken. Dolphin friendly tuna. So there are some forms of tuna fishing that involve dolphins herding up the tuna and oh. then the fishermen come in and catch that tuna oh kind and, of acting like a team yes but that can not be great for the dolphins there can be more dolphin mortalities involved yes. in that fishery so if you see dolphin friendly and it's been caught by that method then that's that's a good thing it means steps have been taken in general dolphin friendly i wouldn't say is necessarily a badge of particular sustainability or it doesn't okay. necessarily mean it's a green light go for it mm-hmm. But the other label you're likely to see is a Marine Stewardship Council certified fishery. And okay. those ones are good. Those ones you can rely on. They've been pretty well assessed. Um, the fishing methods have been thoroughly looked at. The stocks are probably in a good state. Um, and that's a much safer one to look for. So broadly speaking, if you if you want to go by labels, that's kind of how that works. But you can also, with most tuna fisheries, it will tell you what ocean it was caught in, what species it is, oh. and how it was caught. And those are always the three things that you need to know. If you're going to find out if your seafood is sustainable, you need to know exactly what species it is, where it was caught or farmed, and how it was caught or farmed. And without those bits of information, very difficult to make a judgment. Okay. So... That's kind of like the first step. Obviously, if you're looking at a tin of tuna, there's no one to ask. But <laughs> if you're in a restaurant and you want to know more about your tuna or whatever it is you're eating, the first step is always to ask for those bits of information. And ideally, they'll be able to tell you okay. if, if they can't. You hope so. Maybe give it a pass if they can't. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so and then when you're looking at something like tuna, the most um, sustainable method is pole and line court. That's which is my next question. Yeah. So and the super trawlers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with something like a tuna fishery, it's on an enormous scale. So okay. when they're purse seining, which is a big net that just sort of um, uh, scoops them up, it gets closed at the bottom and then scoops the tuna up into the into the boat um, on a really large scale. That can catch a lot of other species. It mm. can catch sharks and turtles as much as it can catch the tuna. Um, some of them can even catch dolphins, um, and there are known instances of them catching whale sharks oh. as well by that method. So, I mean, that gives you a, a bit of an idea of the scale of the size of these big exactly. purse nets. Like, to get a whale shark in. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're a big deal. Um, that's that's one of the common methods of doing that. And um, long lining is another common method of catching tuna. Okay. And those long lines can be again. There are there are always sort of if there's a certified option for these things, then that means they've looked at that. They've taken a lot of steps to mitigate that bycatch. But um, if it's not certified and it's a long line fishery, there are some. What is a long line fishery? So a long, a long line fishery is is literally a long line that has got hooks on it, and those hooks will be baited. Ah, okay. And they're designed to attract the tuna, but they attract a lot of other things. Oh. Particularly sharks, so that can be very problematic. They can also attract a lot of seabirds. So long lining in somewhere like the Southern Ocean can attract some quite um, endangered Antarctic seabirds oh. onto those lines. And there are ways you can avoid that. You put the lines out at night, you make sure they're weighted so they're not close enough to the surface, and you can have bird scarers on the boats. But how many of those measures are put in place varies. So it's 
it's a tricky situation, which is obviously where something like the Good Fish Guide comes in, that we are actually going through fishery by fishery, looking at exactly what mitigation measures are required and are being put in place, and then making a judgment based on that, whether that longline caught tuna is in fact particularly sustainable or particularly mm. unsustainable, and providing advice. But in general, something like pole and line caught is a much lower impact. It's very selective because they're going to be going for that one tuna that they're getting and that's it. It doesn't happen. It's not like a little guy in a boat just tweaking You've it out. imagined my next question. That's exactly <laughs> what I was imagining. Just a lovely little fishing boat of old people, retired, just having a lovely fishing time. Yeah, no, it's, it's not quite like that. If you imagine sort of a boat that is it's moving through the water and, and you've got these guys, like maybe 10 or 15 guys just on the back of the boat and they're just hoiking one tuna out after the next, after the next. Okay. So they will have used bait to track them in mm. and that bait will be another species of fish. So that has sustainability issues, oh, you know, depending on where that species of fish comes from. Oh, it's a whole cycle. But um, that doesn't mean that it's not sustainable. It just means that the scale of it needs to be carefully monitored. Okay. And if it's at a level where it's not having these major other impacts, then we can, you know, we can feel fairly confident about eating it. But it's it's never a, a black and white picture with sustainable seafood and, no. and wild capture fisheries. There's always some gray area, some nuance, and it's so difficult for consumers that really without some kind of expert knowledge or, or some or guidance, a handy fish guide or, or a good fish guide, <laughs> um, it's just a huge challenge to know what to look for. So that's what we're trying to do is empower people so that they have enough knowledge to make the right decisions. And you just talked then about wild stocks. But there's a whole other element to, you know, where we can be getting our fish. Um, you've got aquaculture and fisheries and things and fish farms, as it mm, were. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of different types of fish farms, aren't there? Yeah. So um, a lot of people f have a fairly dim view of fish farms. Probably they think me. That, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, there's a lot, you know, there, there are some sort of perceptions that have really just stuck around from, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago that um, they're all densely packed. They're full of antibiotics and chemicals. Um, there's just, um, you know, huge impacts on the environment, um, you know, and, and all of this sort of thing. And there are actually lots of different types of aquaculture, fish farming that are very sustainable. Mm -hmm. And some of our most sustainably rated seafood on the good fish guide is is farmed so there are some something the most sustainable like loveliest example is mussels because they pretty much stick a rope in the water <laughs> mussels will attach themselves to it and the mussels just eat what comes past and then they'll gather them off the ropes so yeah. they're like it takes really no space easy and they just yeah. eat whatever's in the water exactly we're not having to put any extra stuff input into the water mm. we don't need to worry about antibiotics we don't need to worry about crowding they just do their thing and then we eat them. <laughs> um, so that's sort of, I suppose, like the really easy end of the scale. And then you've got um, the other end of the scale, which is a little bit more of a stereotypical, something like salmon farming, um, which is in a open net pen mm. at sea. So you'll have stuff that's being put into those pens that will be getting out into the water column and that can have impacts on the seabed, for yeah. example. It, um, so if they're putting in... Um, parasite killers because lice is a big problem with salmon oh really then that's getting into the wider sea um there's effluent from that salmon farm there's antibiotics that's going in so there are with a number of open net pen farming systems there are lots of concerns but you can get organic certified versions of that and okay. that's something we would recommend in general if it's organic they're gonna have been monitoring it a lot more closely Probably the fish are stocked at lower densities, which means they don't need to put so many antibiotics in. Mm -hmm. um, there's less of a worry with sea lice, hopefully in general. So there's um, there's improvements there. But then the the other sort of the other option is a, a closed system on land, um, a recirculating closed system, and that that is kind of basically as it sounds. They're in tanks. 
what goes in is um, controlled. What comes out is is kept. It's not going to go into the natural environment. So it has a pretty low impact on the environment. But the problem with those ones is they're quite expensive. Mm. So there aren't so many of them globally. And where you get them is usually in, in more developed countries that have an economy that can support a closed recirculating system. Um, so they're getting more common. And you can get things like Arctic char, which is related to cod, mm -hmm. um, really tasty. And you can get some of that farmed in the UK, but still quite a small scale. So you might struggle to find it in the supermarket. Ah, but, okay. You know, <laughs> keep your eye out for these sorts of things because they're available. So there's one country that leads the way with this as well, or at least appears to, is Norway. Norway is massive mm. on its aquaculture, isn't it? I spent some time um, up in there the couple of, last couple of years, and it, it feels like almost every fjord that you drive around, you can see these little circular pens, um, and they don't, you know, they don't really look very obvious, but you do see them kind of everywhere and um, I remember being with someone and they were like what earth is going on in there is that like a swimming pool I was like no it's, it's a fish farm yeah. um, because like you said um, it, it's one of those ways where Norway is quite heavily reliant on its fishing industry and that's one way that it can support its own fishing industry and its economy but by doing so in a slightly less um, detrimental way to some of the fish stocks that it would normally have around it especially in the winter yeah um, being exactly yeah. depleted by massive trawlers the only problem with um some of these ones and salmon's a good example um i think prawns as well is they're carnivorous so they need to be fed by a ah. fish of some kind oh i see <laughs> um so there are doesn't that doesn't mean that it's all terrible but it means that the fish feed that goes into fish farming is sort of probably one of the biggest problems that needs to be tackled because okay. as i was saying before 90 percent of our wild fish stocks are at capacity or over capacity in terms of how much fishing they can handle and our population is growing and actually our consumption of seafood is growing it's it's like more than doubled in the last 30 or 40 years oh really why do you so reckon that is i think it's getting more of an attractive option i think there's a little bit more um prestige to it um there's also um there's health advice, so the NHS advises eating two portions of fish a week, and oh. one of those should be oily fish, and hardly anyone is doing that. And in fact, I think if everybody in the UK tried to do that, we might find there's not that much there's not that much available on the market. <laughs> so it might become a bit of a shock, but actually it's recommended for health reasons. Really, oily fish is good for the heart, so there's lots of good health reasons for eating fish. Um, so it's yeah, so it's it's getting more of an attractive option to people. And actually, there there are some parts of the world where um, the fish are the primary source of protein something like half the world's population is solely dependent on fish as their main source of protein um, because they just don't have access to a diverse other range of foodstuffs that can that can fill that need for mm. them th that nutritional need so um it's important and it you know we we shouldn't say to people just stop eating fish that's not what we believe because it's it's a part of our it's part of a lot of countries economies it's part of a lot of countries cultures it's important for health reasons it's not going to go away some people just don't have an alternative so mm. we've got to make sure that we turn it around and make it sustainable and in the uk we import most of the food we eat yes we're an island nation we export 60 percent of what we catch we import 70 percent of what we eat it doesn't add what? up <laughs> it doesn't <What>? make sense <laughs> um and so what we're eating is having an impact on some of these areas where they are dependent on that fish fish for their own protein income. Yeah. So we have this sort of global impact with our seafood choices 
Um, and one of the things that we'd like people in the UK to do is pay a little bit more attention to locally caught seafood as long as it's sustainable mm. um, because that's it's supporting local fishers and farmers and it's supporting the local economy, um, but it's also doing things like reducing the carbon footprint of your seafood. Very true. Um, it's transport miles have been massively yeah. reduced if it's come locally, of course. Yeah. And do you think as well, just something that you mentioned there, um, obviously we won't, we're not telling people to stop eating fish in any way just to be smart about it, but one thing that, does seem to be coming out of the news at the moment is there's a lot of kind of stop eating meat for the climate do you think that maybe people might soon start supplementing um where they would be eating meat in meals um kind of eating a lot more fish do you think we'll see a big rise in how the uk consumes fish i think that would not be a bad thing if that was the way that people went so mm -hmm. um fish are really good at converting protein we still obviously we need to address that fish feed issue but um uh, a lot of uh, fish species are much better at converting the food that they eat into flesh, basically, for us to eat um, <laughs> than uh, most terrestrial animals. You know, particularly cows are really bad at it. Chickens yeah. are pretty bad. Pigs aren't great at it either. Mm. Fish are much, much better at that. So uh, in terms of a source of protein that has a lower, wider impact, uh, fish are a pretty good option. And actually, in terms of the amount of water that's needed, their carbon footprint... They can be better than some like nuts, some soy, depending on how the responsibly sourced soy is. So mm. they are a genuinely sustainable option. And I think with our growing population and our growing demand for food and protein in intake, they need to be a really central part of, of our diets going forward. And how aware do you think people are of this issue? Because I know whenever I mention, um, you know, sustainable fishing, the first thing that comes up um, often tends to be, oh, well, I know I can't eat cod anymore. Yeah, <laughs> but then that's kind of where the conversation stops. There doesn't seem to be much much else around that. You know, what should people swap cod for? I know some people are saying, ah, pollock. That's one I know should be sustainable, but I don't know if people know where they've got that from or whether that's still the case. Yeah, and it does vary. So um, the Good Fish Guide we update every year. Every time new science comes out, we update all of our ratings advice. And you know, with some stocks, it's you know staying fairly static, but with some stocks, um, things are changing. And North Sea cod is a really good example. So. Norsey cod looked like it was improving. It's been in a really bad state since the 90s. Um, and that's as much environmental reasons as it is fishing pressure. Um, I think the problem in a lot of cases is with climate change, that's putting fish stocks under pressure as it is with a lot of environments. And we're not reining in our own human pressure mm. on that stock to, to help it be resilient to, to other environmental changes. So yeah, Norsey cod wasn't doing well, started to slowly improve management didn't wasn't sort of cautious enough in slowly increasing the fishing pressure and now we've seen it crash again um, or getting close to the point where it might crash again um but probably most of the cod that people are eating is from norway um sorry most of the cod people are eating is from iceland or the uh, northeast arctic okay we're the the fisheries up there are pretty sustainable actually oh that's good all of the cod coming from iceland is marine stewardship council certified brilliant so you can feel good about eating Icelandic cod, cod people yeah that's where it's at you okay. can go for it um but just um yeah just keep an eye on on where it came from you can't you can't sort of really unfortunately lump all of the species in together and say that's a good species and that's a bad species but as things stand at the moment hake is a really good alternative if you want to move away from cod or you want to move away from a stock that's under pressure european hake 10 years ago okay. was was doing really badly two years ago was at its highest ever levels oh, brilliant. It's, it's booming so and it's really tasty it's related to cod so, so it's, it's still a, a white fish for a white fish yeah exactly okay um and it's something to look out for and, and there's loads of it caught around the uk i think we export 50 percent of what we catch 
Um, really? So we could be, you know, re relying more on that stock and less on something like tuna, which has probably been flown in from somewhere much further away mm. <laughs> because most of the tuna we eat is tropical. Um, we could be going for something a lot more local um, and sustainable. Okay, and looking towards the future then, uh, the dreaded uh, B word, I'm really <laughs> sorry, I'm going to bring it up. Um, <laughs> Brexit, with Brexit. Um, we're more likely to then have a lot more control over the fishing that goes on around the UK. As you said, we're an island, we're surrounded by potential fish stocks, right? So how would that impact, you know, the fishing that goes on and, and how would how we would rely on fishing? It's, it's going to be a really important um, aspect of, of our fisheries, our sustainable seafood going forward. And it's difficult at the moment to tell which way it's going to go. Mm. So we have the common fisheries policy um, with the European Union, which sort of governs um, how we should be approaching fisheries management. The ideal is that we should be getting, well, actually, we should be um, aiming to fish all of our fish stocks at maximum sustainable yield, which is kind of, as it sounds, the maximum that the stock can take without being be. impacted. Yeah. By next year. Wow. That, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so we're not, we're not going to, not going to get that target. Oh, no. I mean, um, around the UK, 40% of our stocks are overfished. So, um, we have that legislation anyway, and that, that governs a lot of, of how we should be approaching our fisheries. And as part of the Brexit process, there was a fisheries bill that was being discussed and um, we worked really hard on trying to provide some advice on how to make sure that that was a strong piece of legislation. Then some uh, prorogation things happened. Uh. <laughs> Everything that was in process in a prorogation gets dropped. So all of that hard work was gone. We thought it might come back really? as a sort of a zombie bill. It didn't come back. So a huge amount of hard work that's gone on on some of this legislation, and I'm sure the fisheries bill wasn't the only victim, but it's the one we know most, um, uh, that's gone. Oh, so, I had no idea. Yeah. It means that we don't really know what the future is for fisheries management in the UK after Brexit. Um, it, it, you know, they, there were some signs that it might have been being watered down. So it means that as a consumer, we have a more direct control over sort of what we can be lobbying our government for in terms of fisheries management. And it also might mean, depending on how import and export works, that we have a lot of the seafood that's staying much closer to home because we're having some challenges getting it out there or we're having some challenges importing what's ah. coming in. So there might be some interesting things coming up where we actually really do get to focus on UK um, wild caught and farm seafood and sort of, I guess, celebrate and appreciate it a bit more, but also make sure that we have a more direct um, control and put a lot more pressure on making sure that that's a sustainable option um, and not just, you know, not just a free-for-all. Um, yeah, it really could go anyway with Brexit. So Gosh. I guess we'll just have to wait and see like everyone else. <laughs> yeah, there are some opportunities there though. Definite. There are definite opportunities there. And um, it could be, you know, it could be an opportunity for the UK to be a leader in, in what we're doing with our seafood. But the thing that we really have to remember with Brexit is fish move. That's, that's like the mantra for the past three years, fish move. So yes, we have control over our borders. Mm. We don't have control whether the fish are actually in our borders or not. And Very we are point. still going to need to work really closely with the rest of our European partners um, to, to, to manage that properly. Mm. We're going to have to agree shared quotas. We're going to have to understand when that fish stock is migrating during um, different times of the year or as climate change has more of an impact. And we're going to have to still collaborate and work with them. So we, we can't just close our borders, mm. you know, take it all out of the sea and be done with it because we might find 
that's a little bit more difficult than, oh. <laughs> than it might seem. <laughs> I, can, I can well imagine. And with climate change, um, one of the things that has been affecting fish is their territory ranges have been moving northward, haven't they, with the warming seas? Is that something that's been impacting UK waters or is that kind of something that has the potential to impact UK waters? Definitely has the potential to. Um, and it might be one of the things that's that's made things difficult for North Sea Cod. Um, it likes cold water, mm. so... Um, we're seeing most of it is moving further north in the North Sea, but it doesn't like water that's too deep. And there's this sort of, um, it, gets, it just gets very a lot deeper in mm. the, the north of the North Sea. It just suddenly drops. So that's like a, um, a geographical barrier and a temperature barrier sort of squeezing the cod population. Oh, that might be one of the things that's making it very difficult for this cod stock to recover um, back to the levels that we might consider to be safe, just, you know, just for it to basically self-perpetuate. Mm. So there's that. There's um, mackerel. Um, seems to be moving further north. There are currently some disagreements about how that should be managed because as it moves further north into other countries' waters, they would like to fish more of it. Mm. But if it's moving away from the original country's waters, they don't necessarily want to fish less of it. So that's one of these situations where we need really good cooperation and close management of these stocks because mm. um, it, it, we can't... We're just going to have to move with the times, basically. As as climate change affects these fish stocks, we're going to have to just adapt to, to what happens with them. Some of them are going to be climate change losers. Some, like Hake, is probably a climate change winner. winner so yeah. we'll, we'll see a change in what we can access and we'll have to be adaptable to that rather than just stick with the same old things that we always eat. Because actually, in the UK, we usually eat the same five, which is cod, salmon, tuna, haddock, and prawns. Yes, sounds That's familiar. what we stick with. <laughs> um and we're, everyone is going to need to just be a little bit more flexible and a bit more creative. And there's just loads of awesome stuff out there to try. Mm. So, um, you know, just keep your eye out for what's coming. Yeah, exactly. Broaden your horizons. Great. Well, we've covered a lot and you've very kindly given me my own copy of the, the Good Fish Guide. But where can people get one of these for themselves? So um, the Pocket Good Fish Guides that we have, the paper copies, are sort of very distributed neat. out and in the world. Um, we do have some that we keep in stock here at HQ. So if anyone wanted to, you know, grab a box, they thought maybe their local school or local museum might want mm. to put it up there, or even the local fish and chip shop, we can send that, that would be good. send some out. Um, we've got our smartphone app, um, which is on iPhone and Android. So, you know, hopefully most people will be able to get hold of that mm. and you can download that um, from the relevant smartphone app store <laughs> and <laughs> we're not uh, sponsored you can yeah. say anything you like <laughs> that makes it super easy if you're in the shops as well and you just have a quick question exactly. like say you're looking at your tin of tuna or, or yeah. something and you're kind of like ah well i can't quite remember that's you know, the, then you've yeah. got it in your pocket haven't you which is great yeah. that's the one for when you're out about and if you really want to get into the detail of it we've got our website which um goes into a lot more detail for every rating and um has a lot of justification for our scoring and one of the things that is really important to us for the good fish guide is that it's um it's transparent and it's credible. Mm. So all of our ratings are fully referenced. We put them out to consultation with businesses and suppliers. Um, and we put all of that information up on our website so that if anyone has any questions or even if they think, wait a minute, you've missed a massive report or whatever, um, they can get in touch with us. So our website has got the full details of everything on there if people really want to like get stuck in. Um, and there's contact information on there as well. So if anyone ever have, has any questions. Oh, and we're on Twitter as well, at UK. Very nice. <laughs> I, I will follow you. Great. Um, Thank you. Are, you, are you on Instagram? Uh, at MCSUK. Lovely. Is on Instagram. And the website for MCS is? MCSUK.org. Very, very neat. Well, before we wrap up, um, we do have one regular feature that I need to subject you to. 
<laughs> oh, you look terrified. <laughs> what one good thing have you done this week? This is where Lloyd and I always have to hold ourselves accountable and, and prove that we're trying to do the things that we're talking about. So um, have you done anything good recently? It doesn't have to be this week that you'd like to share with the listeners. We can celebrate. Okay. I was thinking about this a little bit. Um, so it's not this week. It was earlier this year. I got married a couple of months ago. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Oh, brilliant. And um, for our honeymoon, we decided just to keep it in the UK. We're trying to really cut down on flights and, and various other stuff. Obviously, mm. Greta has had, has had a, an influence on everyone and us included. Um, so uh, we just stayed local. We went to Somerset and um, just did a bit of glamping in Somerset, oh, which was nice. awesome. It oh, rained. where did you go? Oh, of course you did. Oh. <laughs> we went to Porlock, um, which is absolutely beautiful. Aww. I would totally recommend it. And even in the rain, it was lovely. And we did some amazing walks. So, um, yeah, it was completely worth it. I think we're going to be doing a lot more. Yeah, we're trying to do that as well, actually, just kind of little weekends away in the UK. But it's one of those things, everyone's so eager to just jump on a plane the moment they have a free weekend and spend a few days elsewhere. But actually, God, the UK has some amazing parts to it. And, it and really it's just, does. Absolutely it's a shame does. not to see it. Yeah, yeah, there's so much to offer and um, I've seen a fraction of it. So, um, yeah, that's sort of a change that I'm going to try and stick with now. Oh, very nice. That's really good. Mine's far less exciting. We insulated our loft this weekend. Lots of fiberglass everywhere, but hopefully means we're going to be slightly more energy efficient during the winter because we've got a very, very old drafty house. So <laughs> It's important. <laughs> not quite so exciting, but it's worth doing. Okay, well, well thanks very much. So um, listeners, um, if you want to keep in touch with us, we are on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You know where to find us. And I'll throw up some links to the Good Fish Guide and all of the sources that you've just mentioned as well and to the app as well so people can get their own. Awesome. Thank you so much. What are you having for dinner tonight, Lloyd? What what fish are you having? Sustainably sourced fish, Emma. Yes, you are. Very nice. What did we reckon? Wasn't Charlotte cool? It was awesome. And I, I really want one of those guides, actually. I'll, I'll I'll send you mine. You can have it. Or you oh. can download the app, of course. Of course. Then you've got Thank it in your you. phone. Yes, I will download the app. Yeah. Ready ready to have in your pocket um, when you're in the supermarket. Yeah, it's good. I, I don't eat a lot of fish, but I think part of the reason is I'm aware of not making quick enough decisions whilst I'm in the aisle it's hard yeah it's really tough because you can obviously plan ahead of time but i'm not very good at that i sort of find out when i'm there and i sort of panic and don't get signal and then i just like oh why not fish anyway yeah i just get something else so that's good great very good thank you for that that's great well thanks thanks the marine conservation society for having me yes thank you so much absolutely pleasure to podcast with them this month for for two interviews that was our second two interviews two very kindly souls agreed to let me put microphones in front of them and quiz them about their jobs and it was very much worth it so thank you very much for that um if anyone would like to get in touch about this episode or anything else keep the conversation going (laughs) as we say it's almost become it's gone full circle, it's hasn't it? It's been a bit of a catchphrase now, hasn't yeah. it? It was it was an accidental repeat and now it's a, a real staple. And they went through like an ironic phase and now it's back to... And now we're just fully in that habit. Yeah. Keep the conversation going. So we've got an email. At for what it's... A, oh, not at. doesn't start with that, does it? No, it doesn't. Gosh, I've done it somewhere. wrong this time. <laughs> for what it's earth pod at gmail.com. Get in touch with us. Instagram. At for what it's earth podcast. Kapow. Twitter. At what earth pod. Kapow. Facebook. Uh, for what it's earth podcast wow thank you very much so get in contact with us if you've got anything to say we'd love to hear from you until then go and eat eat sustainably sourced fish absolutely great advice to end on (laughs) and we'll see you next week bye bye Mm.